As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so Matt, the other day I needed a new project to do, so I started this new project, and what I wanted to do was make a belt uh, completely out of old watches. It ended up just being a waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) And he's back! Yeah! Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Man, I'm I'm doing pretty good, brother. Good deal. So this is a bonus episode. Um, we're supposed to be dark this week. We, you know, have the double dark week sometimes. But as we've said before, Matt and I don't like being dark two weeks in a row. Um, right. We just feel like we need to put out a little more content, but we don't want to do a whole full big episode. So we try to do these bonus episodes. So this is a little mm-hmm. bonus episode. It'll be shorter than a normal episode unless my dumb butt gets to rambling on for some reason. (laughs) Um, But before we get into it, I just want to say, go check out the Podbelly network at podbelly.com. You can find some different shows to listen to and uh, information on podcasting and stuff like that. And if you like these little shorts, if you end up enjoying this episode, you can go to patreon.com slash graveyard tales and get a ton of these short episodes. Um, This one's going to be more in line with what we normally talk about, but our Patreons have a lot of episodes that just random. They, I mean, right. It's all sorts, whatever we want to talk about. Sometimes we do get in personals where you just hear us talk about life and uh, all that. And if you're, if you like this, go sign up to be a patron on patreon.com slash graveyard tales. Yeah. So, as Adam said, we, we do these a little bit differently, uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna really change it up um, for tonight. Uh, Adam has researched tonight's topic. I I know it. I know what the topic is, um, but I haven't gone over any of his notes. So I'm gonna be hearing a lot of this for the first time, just like you guys. Um, but the difference is, is I get to put my two cents in, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and you do too. Just grab the steering wheel and go. It's this, you dummy. Yep, you know? exactly. <laughs> if you scream loud enough, we might be able to hear you. Yeah. So, uh, in, in uh, spirit of flipping the script, Adam, what are we talking about tonight? All right. So, what I wanted to do is talk about atmospheric beasts, as you can tell by the title of this episode. But and and that's not the new Harry Potter thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter and the atmospheric beasts, or and it's also not a new uh, cologne by Gucci. The atmospheric <laughs> beasts. Although that's not a bad name. It's not bad. <laughs> Let's trademark that so we can make a Graveyard Tales cologne. Um. Now, like I said, this uh, bonus episode will be done a little differently than normal main episodes. Um, now I stumbled on this subject and it fascinated me and 
I, I, I'm not smart enough to interpret all the data that I found out there on this topic. So I found some articles with the help of our research assistant, Jeff, and I'll read some of the more interesting parts of the articles, and then we can discuss our thoughts at the end. Because um, some of these topics, as you will see in our sources, if you go down to the bottom of our show notes and check our sources, they get pretty technical um, because there is a lot of sciencey stuff in there. And like I said, not smart enough to interpret all that data. So I got the parts that I was smart enough to understand, and we'll talk about those. So we'll get into it. Around 2013, scientists found life forms in a place that no one thought there could be life. They found them floating in our troposphere. Mm. Now, that's the part of the atmosphere that's about four to six miles above the surface of the Earth. So, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily think there would be life forms there. But they, what they found was that there's not just a small amount of them. They found that at least 20% of every particle in that layer of our atmosphere were living organisms. So we're not talking about there being like a dog running around up there in the atmosphere. Well, wouldn't that be awesome? That would be cool, having a sky dog. <laughs> I, yeah. I would love to have a sky dog. but. We're talking about microorganisms. Yeah. But we, you know, for a long time, we thought there's no way that up that far away from the surface of the earth and the atmosphere that we know and all that, that there could be life because conditions are really harsh up there. It's Mm -hmm. colder. There's not as much oxygen. I mean, it's four to six miles (laughs) off the surface of the earth. So. Scientists have always thought that particles in our upper atmosphere were just salts and dust, um, which, you know, blow up from storms and hurricanes and all that. It'll rip up dust and salt out of the ocean and all that, and it'll float around. And we know that, and you probably know this too, Matt, during certain storm seasons, dust from Africa will actually get picked up in the upper atmosphere and it'll come down in the United States. So it basically fertilizes the United States with a different uh, dust and microbes and stuff like that. But we didn't think anything was actually living. We thought it was all just maybe dead organic matter or dust or whatever. Right, yeah. But this study actually shows that uh, life can actually live in a place that we couldn't ever imagine. Now, according to Costas Constantinidis, it's the best I can do. Um, He's just going to be Costas from now on. Um, He's assistant professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology's School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. He says, quote, we did not expect to find so many microorganisms in the troposphere, which is considered a difficult environment for life. There seems to be quite a diversity of species but not all bacteria make it into the upper atmosphere. So some do die on the way up there, but 20% of the particles up there are living organisms. So living bacteria and, and little microorganisms, it's amazing. But the samples were taken by a NASA aircraft that was fitted with a special probe. They were trying to study high altitude air masses associated with tropical storms. So they went up and they basically scooped up um, like some of the NASA satellites and and stuff that have been put up that they open like a sticky gelatin in the in space and whatever Mm -hmm. particles hit it sticks and then they close it and bring it back. Mm -hmm. That's basically what this aircraft did. Um, But they obtained the samples before, during and after two major tropical hurricanes in 2010. Earl and Carl. So I don't know if anybody remembers those hurricanes, but that's when they took these samples. Now, once the particles were captured in the instrument's filters, scientists analyzed them using genomic techniques. These included the polymerase chain reactions, or PCR, and gene sequencing. Now, these, according to the study, allowed them to detect the microorganisms and estimate their quantities without using conventional cell culture techniques. 
So they didn't have to do what you're probably used to seeing doctors do whatever, where they like swab your throat and then rub that on a culture, let it grow. They were able to do a, a basically a DNA test on it and see it quicker and not have to do the old school way. Now, they discovered living bacteria cells, quote, in the size range of 0.25 to 1 microns in diameter and some fungus. Depending on where the air masses came from, the bacteria was of marine or terrestrial origin. So both kinds in there, which I thought was pretty cool that marine organisms can live up that high off the planet's surface and out of the marine environment. It's amazing to me how some of these, these microbes, these bacteria can survive in these really harsh uh, environments, including environments that are not their own. Right. You know, as Adam said, you know, a, a, a seed dwelling microorganism completely taken out of its habitat and floating around miles above the earth, still living. Right. It's, it's able to continue and, and, and allow us to collect it, which, you know, when you stop and think about it, you're like, well, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool, but it it's cool for so many reasons because of of what it may uh, imply about mm-hmm. you know not only life on this planet but you know sustainable life away from this planet. Exactly, exactly, and that's actually the next part. Great segue, Matt. Um, mm. These studies show that life, even if it's microorganisms, can live high up in our atmosphere. But the question is, is Earth the only place they have been found? Probably not. Now, this next article says that researchers have come to believe that there could possibly be life forms that produce ammonia in the clouds of Venus that are, quote, unlike anything we've seen. Now, it says on our planet, ammonia is a common leftover waste from aquatic organisms. Its presence in Venus's upper atmosphere has been puzzling astronomers since the 1970s, with scientists believing that it should not be produced by any known force on that world. So Venus itself is so hot that it is inconceivable to have life forms. And if there is life in the clouds, it is likely to be microbes like Earth bacteria, Mm -hmm. um, albeit, they say, with a chemical composition unlike that Uh, we have seen on our planet or even neighboring planets like Mars. So that makes sense because if it's going to be life that developed on a planet with different chemical structures than ours, then its makeup is going to be different than the microbes that we find here. Like, if you think about it, we're carbon-based life forms. Everything here on Earth is carbon-based. There have been a lot of theories that on other planets without carbon or without as much carbon, they could be, I don't know, zinc-based life forms or chromium-based life forms or something where whatever base element that they have in abundance is what manufactures life. So that's what they're saying about this in Venus, that there's the potential that there's these microbes in the atmosphere creating the ammonia as a byproduct but they're probably not like what we would see here. Now, it says that in a new study, researchers from Cardiff University, MIT, and Cambridge University modeled a set of chemical processes to show that if ammonia is indeed present, it would set off a cascade of chemical reactions that would neutralize surrounding droplets of sulfuric acid. So Venus is heavy in sulfuric acid, which... Even the most hardy life on Earth has a hard time living in high sulfuric acid environments. Mm-hmm. Says, yeah. Especially humans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd be real bad. 
Uh, it says if this happened, it would decrease the acidity of the clouds from negative 11 to zero on the pH scale. Now, this remains incredibly acidic, but it would at least be a level that life could tolerate. On Earth, there are life forms that produce ammonia to neutralize their challenging environment. So we have that already here. We know that that is a process that life can uh, accomplish Mm -hmm. by neutralizing its surrounding acidic area so it can grow. That's how, if you think about some of the pools in Yellowstone, if you look at these pools, I don't know if you've been to Yellowstone. I, I went years ago, but the pools, they're a sulfury mix and they're so, mm-hmm. so they're yellow and they have signs all around. Do not step in here. If you put your hand in here, it will melt your skin. You know, and somebody jumped in one and actually died several years back. So it's very acidic, but there are microorganisms that live in those pools and that's the way they do it is by neutralizing the sulfuric acid around them enough to where they can live. Now this is quote, we know that life can grow in acidic environments on earth, but nothing as acidic as the clouds of Venus were believed to be. But if something is making ammonia in the clouds, then that will neutralize some of the droplets, making them potentially more habitable said co-author of the study, Dr. William Baines from Cardiff University School of Physics and Astronomy. Now, the scientists go as far to propose that the most plausible explanation is that the origins of the ammonia is biological rather than natural forces such as lightning or volcanic eruptions. Quote, ammonia shouldn't be on Venus, said co-author Professor Sarah Seeger from MIT. Um, It has hydrogen attached to it, and there's very little hydrogen around. Any gas that doesn't belong in the context of its environment is automatically suspicious for being made by life. So in those couple studies that we read, uh, we've looked at there being evidence of living organisms in the atmosphere of Earth and potential evidence of life in the clouds of Venus. Now, before I get into the biggest part of this episode, Matt, I want to stop and see what your thoughts so far are. What do these findings actually make you think when you hear all this information about potential life on Venus and life in our upper atmosphere? Well, you know, the first thing that that comes to my mind is looking into this, it, it goes toward that idea that human life could one day live on another planet Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, you know, we've only really got two options, you know, Mars and Venus. And, uh, you know, even though Mars has been the one of the most focus, um, what's going on on Venus is extraordinarily interesting because we're seeing life in an environment that it shouldn't be, number one, but it's actually... It, it with the the uh, the expulsion of ammonia, it, it's actually adjusting its environment to make it more uh, hospitable. Mm-hmm. So think about it like this: if you know humans, if we're going to live in certain parts of this planet, you, you have to take extreme precautions. Like you know, when you, for researchers that are uh, in Antarctica. I mean, they have to go to to great lengths to make that environment safe for them to live, even for short periods of time, because of the extreme cold. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially what these microorganisms are doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're creating their own environment, like those researchers in Antarctica do. Yep. I mean, you know, they they create those labs and everything with, you know, the proper, uh, you know, insulation and and heating systems that can not only keep them warm at a temperature that is, you know, not going to cause them any harm, but it it has to be able to withstand the those extreme temperatures itself. Right. 
you know, so it, you can't just, you know, go by Walmart and pick up a space heater and go, what did you need the space <laughs> heater for? I'm going to Antarctica. Yeah, right. I got to keep warm, you know? Yep. It doesn't work that way. So they've had to adjust the environment to survive. That's what these organisms are doing. So the way I look at it is life is showing us the way. Yeah. You know, it, it it's teaching humans that hey, we we already know how to do this. Follow our example. Yep. And if we're considering the idea of either higher life forms, life forms from other parts of our own universe or outside, or even, you know, beings that may have inhabited this planet, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago that had a higher level of understanding, you know, it's, they're basically just giving us blueprints Mm -hmm. to say, we know how this works, watch what we do, and then apply it to yourself. Right. And And I think that that's going to be, that's going to be how we figure it out if we do. Yeah. And it's like a lot of scientists have talked about, you know, for the past 20 plus years of we're going to have to terraform Mars if we want to habit, inhabit Mars. We can't just move there and then live in a bubble the entire time we're there. We're going to have right. to find a way to terraform the planet. And in a very small microcosm, that's what these microorganisms are doing, is they're terraforming their environment, like you said, so they can live there. Yeah, and and just know it's fun to talk about. And movies do it. You know, I always think about when it comes to Mars, Total Recall, mm-hmm. where they there's you know there's these big bubble cities and all this stuff. You know, people people are mining things on Mars. Um, we're gonna have to be able to put researchers, human researchers, on Mars for an extended period of time safely before we go anywhere else with this. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the the idea that you're going to have a condo on Mars. That's, that's way, way down the line outside of our lifetime, mm-hmm. but being able to figure out how we could actually land a, a human in a spacecraft on Mars and keep them there for, you know, any length of time safely and bring them back. The, the research that they could, they could do the data that they could obtain would be invaluable. If if not just for, for the idea of keeping researchers on Mars, how it would apply to life on this planet? Yep, that's what I was thinking. Is it it has a lot of implications for living here mm. for a, a, an indefinite amount of time because the world's going to change. It's changed many times in in its history. So if the human species stays around long enough. We're liable to see another ice age or, um, you know, where the, where the continents come closer together and the mm-hmm. pole shift or, or something. So we're going to have to know how to adapt our environment as the environment of Earth changes. So it, it's good, good knowledge to have. Now, okay, so we've talked about Micah Hanks before. Uh, on this podcast and a lot of people probably know who he is because he has his own podcast he's an author he's been on astonishing legends with scott and forrest maybe one day we can get him on here to talk about either this topic or another topic because when i have talked to him he seems like a nice guy he's just super busy right Um, he's way busier than we are Um, but anyway this is an article that he wrote back in 2011, and it's titled Airborne Anomalies, Rethinking Atmospheric Life Forms. So this link is in the show notes if, if you want to go read it, but we're gonna, I'm going to read it here for you because he basically this was the impetus for this episode, and it made me rethink 
some things that I have considered. And so I wanted to do this to maybe get you guys to rethink some stuff and then Matt, get your opinions here on it in a second. So he says, most people, when considering the possibilities as to what UFOs might actually be, tend to lean heavily toward the idea of advanced aircraft that are both intelligently designed and controlled. Many ports, many reports do indeed appear to indicate the objects seen appear mechanical or otherwise manufactured, although there are also the occasional reports of rather amorphous blobs that seem to have little definite shape or form. Now, though the range of potentials for how an alien technology might appear to us remain very broad, he says that perhaps there are other possible identities we could attribute to at least some other UFO reports. One unique, though perhaps unlikely, he says, theory proposed a number of times over the years deals with the idea of atmospheric life forms. As proposed by the likes of Charles Fort, you know him, mm-hmm. uh, he, he proposed that. Trevor James, uh, Trevor James Constable, Ivan Sanderson, among a bunch of others. So you know these people. These are intelligent people in the field of cryptozoology and thinking outside the box. They're, you know, yeah. these are well-known people. And if and if you think you recognize those names, it's because we've talked about them multiple times in different yes. episodes. Yep. And we say Fortiana a lot. You hear that from a lot of people too. Um, a Fortian topic that comes from Charles Fort. He was kind of the godfather of all this, and so it got named after him. Well, uh, Micah goes on to say, essentially, this approach to various reports of UFOs supposes that some of the sightings might describe strange atmospheric beasts that are essentially self-contained energetic creatures. Though the multitude of encounters detailing a more technological origin of UFO craft seems to leave little room for any credence to such ideas as atmospheric beasts, perhaps engaging in a sort of thought game with the subject could provide insights or some merit by virtue of considering airborne anomalies from a less conventional perspective. He says, generally the idea of an atmospheric beast in the present context would involve a creature which either weighs less than air in a given atmosphere or which may be capable of flying by some other means of wingless propulsion. Now, with regard to research into the unexplained, one of the pioneering ufologists to take this approach with the study of unidentified flying crafts was Trevor James Constable, a writer and researcher who outlined his ideas in the 1975 book, The Cosmic Pulse of Life. He says, somewhat sadly, I interviewed Constable a few years ago, and upon mentioning that I had obtained a copy of this book, he joked with me, quote, so you were the one who bought the copy. <laughs> um, but he, he goes on to say that Constable's idea of, quote, critters dealt with amoeba-like creatures that existed in Earth's upper atmosphere and which occasionally fed on livestock and other creatures, hence seeking to explain some of the reports of animal mutilations that occur in conjunction with UFO sightings. So to take a pause there, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That is, if you think about why are, like we did the cattle mutilations episode, why would UFOs be interested in taking pieces of these cattle and leaving the body? What if... It is an atmospheric life form, and that's what they eat. They come down at night, and they feed on parts of the cattle. Something to consider. Mm -hmm. Now, Micah goes on and says, As strange as such an idea may sound at first, even Carl Sagan had discussed balloon-like aliens that might be capable of of existing in the atmospheres of distant gas giants like Jupiter. And... That was one thing that I um, immediately thought when I started reading Micah's article here was I watched a show that had a bunch of different scientists on there, a bunch of different 
astrophysicists and astronomers and stuff. And they were theorizing about what life on other planets would look like. And they said, well, obviously, they're most likely not going to look like bipedal humanoids like we think. Right. Um, Especially if they live on a gas planet. So they had the drawings and animations and stuff of these weird jellyfish-like creatures that would float in the atmospheres of the different planets. And... You know, they range in intelligence from animal-like up to, you know, human intelligence and beyond, but they were in a different form and lived in a different way. And it it made sense to me that if you're going to have life develop on a gaseous planet, why not? Yeah. Yeah, it would would have to be that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Micah says that popular fiction writers like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Ray Brat and Ray Bradbury have dealt with such creatures as well. But since the majority of these sources for the lore surrounding jellyfish-like or amoebic creatures drifting around in the sky stems from either fiction or speculative science, many would argue that more fringe notions of the existence of such creatures were actually inspired uh, by such works. Nonetheless, he said that during a conversation with a fellow researcher, he divulged that during a conversation with a NASA astronaut who had worked with the space program years ago, who also asked to remain anonymous, his contact mentioned projects where he and others had observed strange, quote, energetic forms while monitoring spacewalks using visual apparatus that heightened visibility in the infrared range. Though my contact said the astronaut would not refer to the objects as UFOs, he did mention that questions had arisen over whether they might be some form of energetic life. Furthermore, studies performed by NASA have also suggested the notion that plasma-based life forms might even come to exist in the vacuum of space. So let's pause real quick. Consider that they were using optical devices that showed more of the infrared range than our eyes can pick up. So you say, well, there can't be jellyfish or amoebic-like creatures in our atmosphere because we don't see them and we fly in our atmosphere. We don't see the full range of light. Right. So what if there are creatures that exist that live outside of our spectrum of visibility we see reports of ufos that they only pick up on radar or they only pick up on infrared but they can't be seen with the the naked eye could this also apply to amoebic like life forms or energetic life forms like this nasa astronaut said they they believe is what they saw And that makes you think about these cases where the military has uh, dispatched uh, jets to go investigate an anomaly that showed up on radar, believing that it was an actual craft, uh, whether it be, um, you know, a a, a regular known aircraft, a a foreign aircraft or alien, um, they go out and they get to where it is they even cross on the radar and there's nothing there and they're telling them well we're seeing it on radar well we we can't see anything here mm-hmm. so what if what if it is some type of life form that is outside of our our visual uh ability but it's something that we could pick up on radar that might be an interesting explanation for those cases which there's been plenty of them Oh, yeah. Where an actual human uh, piloting a jet couldn't detect anything. You know, they're they're looking, thinking, well, we got to get up and get a better look at it. Well, mm-hmm. we may be getting the best look we're going to get at it yep. right here on radar. Yep, exactly. Now, Micah goes on to say that if indeed energetic life were to exist and if reports of glowing amorphous blob-like UFOs were indicative of their presence, what might allow these creatures to produce such self-maintained illumination? 
Also, if they were consumers, as Constable proposed, it would have to stand to reason that they also produced waste. If not doing so in the conventional biological sense, he means poop. Um, <laughs> could they perhaps do so through the release of heat or radiation? Now, radiation sickness is a common side effect afflicting those who have encountered a UFO, especially those which appear to be craft of intelligent design. It would be interesting to consider whether similar circumstances surrounded people's encounters with the less tangible variety of UFOs. Now, again, while this supposition that UFO reports could be attributed to amorphous atmospheric beast is unlikely at best, sometimes considering outlandish alternatives allows us to free our minds up to thinking in less conventional ways also and potentially even coming to unique realizations that contrast otherwise widely accepted views on certain phenomena. And I like the way you put that because that's kind of what we think about the topics that we speculate on and, and consider that's our whole purpose is let's just think about things differently. So here's the question, Matt, do you think that there's any possibility that there could be creatures like this living either in our atmosphere or just outside our atmosphere, or could they possibly live in the clouds surrounding Venus or Jupiter or similar planets? And because I, I finished Micah's article, so now it's time for us to talk about it. All right. So my answer to that is yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this, this is a distinct possibility. Um, you know, when you, when you start to open up your mind, um, and, and, and think outside of the restraints of what, what we know, then any, anything is possible, but this seems plausible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I could tell you, yeah, it's absolutely possible that there is a, you know, a, a gigantic, glowing space creature that sits outside of our universe and looks in and yeah, that's a possibility if you think wide enough, but it may not be plausible. This is plausible to me yep. that, that they're absolute. I mean, we've already seen that there's, there's microorganisms that high up in our own atmosphere. So why would it necessarily be limited to that? Um, you know, and I, I think some of it, especially with the idea of, of, of them producing waste, um, you know, we've got, you know, we've got an idea of what carbon based life forms, uh, per, how they produce waste here on this planet. I think we have to break away from that and understand that, you know, another life form may absorb nutrients differently and produce waste differently maybe yep. you know like like even a plant yep. you know where we're gonna we're gonna absorb radiation okay um and we're gonna give off a gas okay we're gonna take in you know nutrients from the soil and the water and the sunlight and we're gonna give off oxygen that not only is important for the plant survival it helps our survival too. So it's, right. it's, it's, it's a, it's a cohabitation here. And I think there's a potential for that to be in the atmosphere as well. Cause we're already talking about, you know, organisms that potentially produce ammonia that somewhat neutralizes that acidic environment on Venus. Um, you know, what if you've got multiple organisms in our own atmosphere that, one needs this to survive, but produces this that another needs to survive, but produces the other thing. And you, you've got this whole other life cycle going on right above our heads. And we're, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what could potentially be going on up there. Right. Here's two things to think about too. One, our flying rods episode. 
This could be the same phenomena as our flying rods. It could be that they're living in a different light spectrum. And the flying rods that we see are only a piece of these atmospheric beasts. Or maybe it's the offspring of these larger atmospheric beasts. That The larger they are, the higher up they are in our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And their offspring... Looks like these flying rods that we see occasionally, and we just catch glimpses of them. And but, the other, but we catch glimpses of them on film. Right, right. Not right, with you the don't, naked eye. Right. So that that lends some credence to the different light spectrum that they're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thought is, what if these creatures? that live in our atmosphere, one of their waste products is what has helped to produce our atmosphere. We have a large, hardy atmosphere that many other planets don't have. Mm-hmm. Well, could that be due to one of the creatures that lives here on Earth that we may not see all the time, but it's producing a waste product that bolsters our atmosphere and keeps us living down here? And I know there's people saying, well, if there's these big creatures, whatever, living in our atmosphere, why don't pilots run into them all the time? Maybe they do. Mm -hmm. But if they're outside of our visual spectrum, we're not going to see it. And if they're able to float in our atmosphere, that means they're very light. They're Mm -hmm. very thin, potentially. So it's not like it would cause a wreck or anything. But right. Maybe some turbulence in an aircraft is running into a a whole pod of these things. Sure. Yeah, I I think there's a possibility there for sure. But I don't know. This topic has fascinated me for a while. And finding Micah's article, which, like I said, you can go down in the bottom of the show notes and read it, um, just kind of helped spur my thought process on this. Because a lot of the stuff that we talk about could tie in to aspects of this, mm-hmm. um, especially the aspect of there being creatures, life forms that live beside us unknowingly. We've discussed that many times, whether we're talking about fae or anything. Could this be what? ancient people considered one part of the fae. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, we as humans have lost abilities, physical abilities over the millennia. We know that. Um, And we speculate that there's a possibility we have lost uh, like telepathic type abilities over the years. But we also know that animals and other forms of life can see different light spectrums. You know, bees and some insects seeing see in the infrared. Mm-hmm. Dogs see different light spectrums. Cats see different light spectrums. So what if we used to be able to see these things? But then as we evolved, we lost that ability to see in the infrared or whatever spectrum of light they live in. So now we don't see them anymore. But your dog ever stand there and just stare up at the sky for no reason? Yeah. What if they can see there's some weird jellyfish-like atmospheric beast coming across and and your dog is sitting there looking at you like, what's wrong with you? You don't see this thing? And your dog's freaking out, barking at the sky. Maybe it's because of that. Yeah. Or even... Just in your house, you know, everybody talks about, you know, my dog went to the door and was growling or whimpering at the door, you know, and they, you know, they come up with a story about, you know, a spirit, which, you know, that's possible too. But what if it's something like this? You know, what if it's a, a, a living organism or a group of living organisms that create a much larger shape? And animals can see it. We can't. Right. Um, and so 
one floats by and your dog sees it and all of a sudden he flips out and you're going, what are you, what are you barking at? There's nothing there. It blows on or it dissipates or whatever. And you know, the dog says, Oh, but it's gone now. Okay. Next yep. time. Never mind. <laughs> Squirrel. I mean, but it, it, again, I, I think this is, this is a plausible idea. I, I will be very curious how much more research goes into this and how much more we learn uh, about the the microorganisms that we found to this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. But as we know, um, and we speculate as well, they probably will not put much time and effort into it because it's fringe and a lot of the fringe stuff doesn't, in my opinion, get the attention that it needs to determine whether it's fringe, whether it's legit, or absolutely no basis to it. We just get a, ah, that's impossible. Uh, is it? I, I don't. I don't think it's really that outlandish. Maybe I'm stupid, but I don't think so. Um, it's because we have open minds. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And not so open that my brain falls out. But, you know. <laughs> um, But I'd be interested to know what you listening at home think. And yeah. I, I guarantee there's going to be something else that I think of as soon as we hit stop that I want to say. Um, so if you have thoughts on it, put it somewhere, get in contact with us and we can probably talk about it more. But what are your thoughts on there being the possibility of life on other planets, gaseous planets that live in the upper atmosphere of these things that kind of look like amoebas or jellyfish. What are your thoughts on there being the, the possibility of atmospheric beasts here in our atmosphere that range in size or whatever, uh, but live in a different light spectrum a different visual light spectrum that you know we we can't see so it's either in the infrared the infra the um just lost that word but the infrared or or another spectrum of light that our eyes don't see that are living next to us all the time that we may be running into or they're dodging us or they're trying to get out of the way of our planes uh, what are your thoughts on that? I'm very interested in what you guys think. Yeah. And one of the best places to, uh, to discuss this is in our Facebook group. It, it is called the graveyard. You can go on Facebook, search graveyard tales, uh, and it will take you right to it. It's one of the, the best, most interactive groups I've seen uh, oh, yeah. out there today. Um, you can also look at our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. And on our website, you can listen to the show, uh, learn a little bit more about Adam and myself. Uh, you can even find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. And, you know, I'm telling you, you can get you can get so much stuff now with uh, with your favorite Graveyard Tales logo on it. Everything from uh, tank tops to uh, baby onesies and, and I think phone, they have, phone yeah. cases. Yep, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is phone cases? <laughs> yeah. So, so if if you've if you've been there before, go check it out again. There's some newer products out there. Uh, if you thought, man, I, I it'd be really cool. You know, Graveyard Tales is one of my favorite podcasts. You know, I'd I'd love to have you know something with their their logo on it. Um, I'm telling you, you can find it there, and and we we appreciate it very much. Um, we got asked the question the other day, Matt, um, in an email about dog clothes or dog items with our <laughs> logo on it. Now, uh, I, I just remembered that we got this email, so I'm bad and I have not responded to that email yet. I apologize if you're listening to this. Um, our merch is through a third party site. Right. So. If we get the ability to maybe produce our own merch or find another site, then we definitely look into dog options because we we would love to strap a Graveyard Tales bandana or something on our dogs. Oh, yeah. Um, 
So it it could possibly be in the works soon. It just our our third party site right now that does our merch does not have dog options. That's why we don't. Yeah, but they have a ton of others. So yep. Um, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, that is how we go up the charts, which makes Adam and I feel good. But more importantly, it makes our show easier to find, which brings more people into the graveyard. So we appreciate everybody that's done it. If you have not done that, please do so. So I, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we had a good time bannering back about all this stuff and, and we're asking you to let us know what you think. Um, so please do that. Mm -hmm. And until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.